Amos. I don't know how many of you have been with us through all nine chapters, but this is the last chapter of Amos. We're going to finish it today. So for those of you who are new, I suggest you hold on to your seat. And especially as this chapter starts, it's like what we've learned for the last few weeks, but there's some good news towards the end. So, uh, but, but hold on. All right, Amos 9, verse 1. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake, and shatter them on the heads of the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away, not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword, and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile, and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt. Who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth? Who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth? The Lord is his name. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt, and the Philistines from Kephter, and the Syrians from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say, Disaster shall not overtake or meet us. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen, and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Good morning, everyone. Our last study of Amos, as Mike said, and so we're going to say amen to Amos. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Amos and 
your faithful servant who's given us this word. And we ask God that we're not stuck in the past 8th century BC when Amos wrote this, but how do we apply this for today? Because your word is living, it's dynamic, and it's for eternity. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that this is more than just information. This is more than just a feeling or conviction, that this is something that is transformative and conforming us more into the image of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, one thing that's clear about the book of Amos is that God speaks to his people, and sometimes he speaks to them forcefully. He spoke to Israel in the 8th century B.C., and he speaks to us about those privileges that we have because we belong to God, that our privileges don't give us reasons to be complacent with our faith or with our lives. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 48, Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. The privileges of belonging to God brings about unique attention from God. As followers of God, we know that our sins are forgiven. But the thing is, is that we can't live in the past. And no matter how sinful our lives used to be, and that we know that we've been forgiven of our past, we don't live there. Our spiritual, our moral devotion to God is in the present. It's not in the past. And that's not just for each one of us personally, but that's for us as a community, such as a church. And the past, no matter how wonderful it was, it can't be swapped for what's happening in our spiritual and our moral devotion to God in the present right now. Religious practices, observances, professions, those are all unacceptable if there's no solid proof that one has a relationship with God right now. So the religious folks of Amos' day, confronted in the 8th century B.C., were these religious hypocrites who were immoral, they were corrupt, they were wicked, and God called Amos out of his occupation as a shepherd, as a dresser of sycamore figs from Judah, the southern kingdom, called him to go up to the northern kingdom, Israel, to deliver this message to them. And what was that message? I think it's a three-part message. The first thing is that God would break them. Second, God would enlighten them. And then thirdly, God is going to restore them. Now before we go any further, let's get some context to help us with this passage. We know that the kingdom was divided. Jeroboam, the first Jeroboam, took ten of the northern tribes and he took them, established the northern kingdom, Israel. And so Judah was the southern kingdom and that's where Amos was from. That was led by King Rehoboam. And so different Jeroboam, Jeroboam II, began establishing other places of worship in the northern kingdom. And in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 26, we get more detail as to what's happening with Jeroboam. So let's turn there. 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 26 through 33. Let me read this to us. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Jeroboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold, your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other one he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin. For the people went as far as Dan to be before one. 
He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. Amaziah is one of those guys. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the 8th month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. So you see how Jeroboam forged this phony feast. He forged this phony altar so that he could forge a phony kingdom. Amos was called by God to confront Jeroboam about all this stuff. And so Jeroboam wasn't really pointing people to God. He was pointing people to himself. Look back to verse 32. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. And then verse 33. He went up to the altar that he had made, and he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. This was all about Jeroboam. This had nothing to do with God. Now notice chapter 9, verse 1, Amos. I saw the Lord standing beside this altar. All of this religious phoniness going on and God had enough of those religious charades. He was going to come and judge. You take a look at God breaking them in verse 1 through verse 6. And He said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake. And shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to the heavens, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them and I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts and all who dwell in it mourn and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and found his vaults upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. All of this religious phoniness was coming down. And no one who took part in those religious charades was going to escape the wrath of God. See, there's no running from God's judgment. But the flip side is true too. There's no running from His love. Romans chapter 8, verses 35-39. through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord. So there is no escape from God's wrath for those who face God's judgment. And those are namely sinners. And there's no escape from God's love for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm concerned that our society 
has created our own religious phoniness and our own religious charades. We've created our own feasts, our altars, our kingdoms. You look at Easter, Thanksgiving, Christmas. You look at our historical civic monuments. You look at how we open meetings at various things with a prayer. And I think that God is revolted by our society's phony religiosity. The God of verses 1 through 6 is the same God today who is disgusted with phony religion. And there were people who used religion to feel secure about their own lives while neglecting their relationship with God, doing all these religious things empty of meaning between God and themselves because while they celebrated religious feasts and they gave offerings and they worshipped, they were in sin, believing that God was fine with how they lived their lives while in reality God was revolted. He was disgusted by how they lived. Now God didn't break them without reason. So in the next section of Scripture is where God enlightened them as to the judgment that they were going to receive, that, that He sees everything. Verse 4, And I will fix my eyes upon them. And then look at verse 8. The eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom. See, God sees all sin. There's no getting away with anything. You can't hide anything from God. Verse 7, Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Now, wait a minute. You're like, what? How can they be like the Cushites? Because back in Amos chapter 3, verse 2, it's written, You only I have known of all the families of the earth. So now why is God saying, are you not like the Cushites to me? Well, God wasn't saying that Israel was no longer his people. God here is showing his sovereignty. That Israel, as well as the Cushites, are under the reign of God. And it's the same for today. God is sovereign over those who acknowledge Him as God, and He is also sovereign for those who reject Him as God. He's still sovereign. Verse 7 continued, Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaphtar and the Syrians from Kerr? So God was sovereign over the migration of all these people groups. And yes, the Israelite exodus from Egypt to Israel was under God's sovereignty. It was under His sovereign watch. But God's sovereign watch was also over the Philistines from Kaphtar and also for the Syrians from Kerr. He was sovereign over all of them. Now why do I bring this up? Because being a child of God doesn't give you the right to act like a spoiled brat. Because you belong to God doesn't give you license to be sinful, immoral, unethical. And just because we have the privileges of belonging to God doesn't make us exempt from His judgment. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground. See, God does not discriminate against gender, ethnicity, race, but He does discriminate against the sinful. Your relationship with God is not something you're born into. It's not something you can inherit. It's not something that you can buy. The proof that you have a relationship with God is that you are obedient to Him. You abide in Him. Your relationship with Him is not based on your past relationship with Him. Even though that may be significant and that was incredible and even miraculous, but what is your relationship with Him right now are you living in obedience living a moral life living a spiritually honorable life with god in the present 
Now you notice verse 8 again. Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom. It does not say were upon the sinful kingdom. It's are. It's right now. It's present. It's how you're living your life with God right now. Not how you used to live your life as a Christian years ago, but how you were living this past weekend. Mm-hmm. I'll just pause there for a little bit. Not what you believed about Christianity years ago, but what's going on through your mind right here and right now? What things do you need to rethink right now? The Lord God's eyes are upon the sinful kingdom. So what will He see in your life if you were to come face to face with Him right now? How are your relationships with others, whether they're platonic or romantic, how are your relationships with them? How are your business dealings? Are you a moral person or are you an immoral person? Are you obedient to God or are you disobedient to God? The Lord God's eyes are upon our sinful nation. And God's judgment is based off of one's relationship with Him now, not something in the past. Verse 8, Except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. God's not like personality disorder. I'm going to destroy I'm not going to destroy That's not what's happening here, okay? This is an important lesson to take away. Brokenness comes before restoration. Otherwise, there's no restoration. You don't restore something that's not broken, right? You just store it, I guess. I don't know. You know, when I visited my grandparents in China, I heard this guy shout, it sounded really freaky, especially to a 10-year-old boy. And I couldn't understand what he was saying. I was like, my Chinese is not that bad. I should be able to understand something. And so I asked my dad, I was like, what did he say? And he says, he's saying, my lan, my lan, yeah. Which means, buy broken things. But he's like, my, And I just couldn't, and so he broke it down for me. And my dad told me that it was this guy who came around looking for junk. Right, And so the junk, you can just throw it out to him or you can bring it down to him. And so I was freaked out about this guy because I just heard this really weird sound and I didn't know what it was. So I never had the courage to look outside at what this guy looks like because all I could imagine was people throwing dead bodies on this guy's cart. And there was like a bunch of corpses that are piling up on this guy's cart because, you know, they're just throwing broken things and stuff like that. So, you know, I, I couldn't do that. But then a few years later, I went back to China. And so I got the nerve to take a look outside as this guy came back and there weren't any dead bodies. And so I was looking, I was like, that guy has a lot of junk. That guy has a ton of junk. And people just throwing stuff out and giving stuff to this guy. And you know that phrase, one man's trash is another man's treasure? This guy had a lot of treasure. And so that was his treasure. And I imagined all the broken stuff he was collecting during the day. And when he got home and he's sifting through all that stuff to find some really great stuff that he was going to restore because he saw value in it and then he was going to be able to use that stuff. And he didn't collect broken things so that he can break them some more. Right? I mean, that's not why he did it. He collected that broken stuff to restore it back to a beautiful state. Now, when God comes to collect those who are broken, He's not collecting you to break you some more. He's going to restore you. He's a God of restoration. When God comes in judgment of a church, a society, a nation, He comes to separate the phonies from His genuine followers. 
That doesn't mean that not everyone's broken. It's the same pile. But he's separating that stuff. And the book of Amos shows us that God is holy and those who belong to God have a path of obedience to walk along. And when sin enters, there's judgment from God because He's a God of justice. But God's purpose is not just to break you, it's to restore you. It's to save you. Verse 9, For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nation as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say, Disaster shall not overtake or meet us. Now, did you notice that all the sinners will die by the sword in verse 10? It says all the sinners. But it's this particular group of all, if that makes any sense. It is all those sinners who say, disaster shall not overtake or meet us. And so thank God it does not say every single sinner is going to die because then we're all dead, right? I mean, like who here is not a sinner? Anybody? Besides your wives, right? Besides your wives. Right? <laughs> Those who belong to God acknowledge that we are sinners. That we are sinners saved by grace. So who are those who say, disaster shall not overtake me or meet me? Those are self-righteous people. No fear of God. No reverence for His Word. Just self-righteous people who put their trust and their faith in other things, just not in God. And so when we think of people like this, I think that we tend to move towards secular people. Right? And you wouldn't be wrong in that thinking because I think a lot of secular people place their faith and their trust in things like science or humanity or economics or whatever it may be, politics. But the thing is, Amos is talking to religious people here. He's not talking to those secular folks. That's a given. That's a simple one. We can see that one. But I think there are a lot of religious folks who have put their faith and their trust in religious things, but not God. Jesus said in Luke chapter 3, verse 8, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. So in other words, belonging to God, you can't inherit that, you can't buy that, you're not born into that. It's all about keeping or bearing fruits in keeping with repentance. Those who belong to God seek to live lives pleasing to God. They pursue holiness, they pursue righteousness, knowing that it is God's grace that has saved them from their sin. And this is what true followers of Jesus do. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, starting in verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. 
So we see the breaking in verses 1 through 6. We see the enlightenment in verses 7 through 10. And then we see this restoration. Now, before we get any further into restoration, I ask you, do you really know God this morning? Do you bear fruits in keeping with repentance? And I'm not talking about perfection because no one is perfect. But are you more like Jesus today than you were before? Are you practicing a sin right now? Are you in a habitual sin right now? And if there is a sin that you're caught up in and you're not turning away from it, you're not in a good place. Today is the day for you to repent, to turn back to God. And it's enough of playing religion because you're in church here, but you're not living right. Stop playing. How about a real longing for a relationship with God where you desire to do the good and the right thing? Where you know the word of God to be true and you fear God because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. To be aware of self-righteousness because that separates you from God and that separation is hell we broke down the definition of hell isn't that just to be separated from God now back to restoration which is the rest of the chapter and where Amos leaves this book on a really hopeful and high note in that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with it. Now, when did this raising up of the booth of David that had fallen, when did that happen? Back in Luke chapter 2. Back in Luke chapter 2 with this old guy named Simeon. Right? Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel." So the prophecy was fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. And so this restoration continues. Verse 14, Amos chapter 9. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be rooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Now, some Christians will use verses 11 through 15 to point to the establishment of modern-day Israel. I just don't completely agree with that. The book of Amos has application to us as the people of God. We 
are the Israel of God, as Paul pointed to in Galatians chapter 6, verse 16. And for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. We are the seed of Abraham by spiritual birth, even though we don't have a blood lineage. And the entire book of Amos was applied to us as the people of God. So how can anyone just take verses 11 through 15 of Amos chapter 9 and say, oh, this just pertains to Israel, when everything else we've kind of applied to us? You can't just take this little piece and say that's them and then it's not everybody else. Unless you believe that the book of Amos was only written for the people in the geography of Israel, right there, right now in modern day Israel, which I don't believe is true. Did Amos write this book for the Israelites who came back from the 6th century B.C. exile? Or did he write this to the Jews who returned back to Israel as we know it today back in 1948? Or did Amos write this book for future Jews who will know the Messiah and will be led back to Palestine? And there are other propositions that come from the Christian community. And there are a ton of people with differing opinions as to what this means. So... With all these differing opinions, how do we interpret Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 15? This is really important. We have to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. That's what we have to do. It's not your opinion. You use Scripture to interpret Scripture. So, for this, what do we have to do? We have to turn to Acts chapter 15. And in Acts chapter 15, you'll find that there's a council of Jerusalem there, and then these guys are meeting, and with the apostle James, thank you, Mike, James, this is the same James, using the verse from chapter 9, verse 11 of Amos as an explanation of what was happening in James' day in regards to the spreading of the gospel at the council of Jerusalem. And this is what it says, Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 15. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, here's Amos, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that had fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. James and the apostles did not interpret Amos chapter 9 as a fulfillment of the scriptures through the establishment of modern day Israel. James and the apostles saw the prophetic fulfillment of the book of Amos through the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. Amos chapter 9 verse 11 was fulfilled through Jesus according to Acts chapter 15 verse 15. We interpret scripture with scripture. So you look at something like Joel. Prophet Joel, Joel chapter 2 verses 27 through 31, the prophet Joel wrote this. You shall know that I am the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. 
And so, same thing. Some people interpret this to apply to modern-day geographical Israel. That this was what happened in the 1920s or in the 1940s to the Jews. But we have to interpret Scripture with Scripture. So if we do that, what do we do? We look to Acts chapter 2, where the prophet Joel's prophecy was fulfilled and where the apostle Peter, along with the other apostles, interpreted Joel chapter 2 to those in Israel. Now, I'm not bringing this stuff up because I'm anti-Israel, right? I mean, we do a pilgrimage to Israel about every six years at this church. That's kind of the average. Right? And then we do the uh, footsteps of Paul, those other off years. So every three years we're doing like the footsteps of Paul or Israel, footsteps of Paul. So that's kind of the trend. So I'm not anti-Israel. I'm pro-Israel. I'm pro-Israel. But I'm also pro-Palestine. I'm pro-peace. I'm pro-Jesus. That's what I am. So we need to be careful not to enter into Scripture with our unchecked biases that we've been kind of biased with media or how we grew up or we were growing up in the church and we got these verses misinterpreted for us and things like that. Because the thing is, you and I, we go into interpreting Scripture with our biases. We do. That's how we grow up. And we have our biases and we look at these things and we just kind of have these automatic things that we think. But the thing is, we have to check them. We have to check it. We have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Now why do I bring all this stuff up? Because Amos chapter 9 is applicable to us in the present and God is active in the restoration process of His people today. It's not something that happened before. It's not something that's just for modern day Israel. It's for all of us. And the thing is this. Are you really active in that process? Or are you self-righteous? Being a religious phony? Are you really conforming into the image of Jesus? Or is something else happening? Do you really belong to Him? Really? Let me share with you something about God. No one's cornered the market on God. No country... No nation has dibs on God. But if you want to know God's intentions and purposes, it's not found in a nation. It's found in the church. The church of Jesus Christ. That same Peter who spoke in Acts chapter 2 is who Jesus told, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Every Great nation, every great kingdom, every great empire has fallen. The longest lasting empire was the Roman Empire. Right? It lasted 1,480 years. It fell. 1,453 it fell. And the church of Jesus Christ has been going on for over 2,000 years. And its effects on the world are beautiful and nothing prevails against it. And I bring this up because sometimes we look at the church and all we focus on is the ugliness of the church. All the wrong that it's done. All the bad stuff going on. But look at the beautiful things that the church has done. Did you know the first orphanages were built by the church? And you look at what the church has done in terms of medical facilities throughout the world, throughout history. Did you know that all Ivy League schools were started by Christians, except for Cornell. So that says something about Cornell. But 
All the rest of them were started by Christians. Did you know that? Higher education was from Christians and we got hijacked somewhere along the line. They took our bus. And you may be thinking, the church was active in social justice back then, but not today. Like, the church is dead today. The church is nothing. It's just all about scandals and money and all this stuff. We know that the highest rate of slavery in the history of humankind is today, don't we? It's the church that's on the forefront of this issue. I don't know if you know this or not, but it's the church. I'll give you one example. I'm a board member at New Day for Children. So New Day for Children rescues and provides care for trafficked girls under 18, all from the United States. Why? Because there's only a few homes that do that. If you're an international girl, you have a ton of resources for you because we don't have to worry about CPS and all that kind of stuff when it's an international person. But when it's a domestic, when it's a U.S. person, there's so much red tape that we have to go through. And so we've had secular people who have come to us disappointed that there isn't a secular organization that rescues and provides care to girls like we do as a Christian organization. We've had a lot of donors come up to us and they're asking us, do you know of a secular organization because you're faith-based and we don't want to provide that? So do you know of another one? You know what? They come back to us. They come back to us because they've looked everywhere. They've looked throughout the entire United States and they end up giving to organizations like ours. Why? Because we're the only ones that do that. The church is the only group that does that. The church is beautiful. We do stuff that was created long before other people do that. In the Roman Empire, right in the beginning of the early Christian church, they would just discard baby girls. It's kind of like modern day China. Right? That abortion rate is just astronomical. They just get rid of them. What did Christians do back then? They were left for dead. Christians would take those little girls and raise them. Raise them to be Christians and marry those little Roman boys out there and they would be converted. And that was the start of Christianity and Christianity was spread a lot through things like this. The church is beautiful and there's a lot of ugliness around us and sometimes the church is ugly. I'm not saying it's pretty all the time. I mean, it wakes up in its bed head and all that stuff, bad breath and all. It's the same stuff, same stuff as everybody else. But Amos shows us that no matter how broken the world is, God is there to enlighten us and God is there to restore us. And a big way he does that is through his beautiful bride, the church. If there is any self-righteousness within one's heart, you'll miss the beauty of the church because you're just going to be too critical about her hair being misplaced or her makeup's not pretty enough or she needs to brush her teeth again or you know, she's not wearing the right colors or whatever. You're going to have all this criticism about the church and you're going to look at it so negatively. And the God of Amos is alive and active today in our broken world if there's going to be any enlightenment, if there's going to be any restoration, it's going to be through him. And he chose the church. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we don't lose our brightness, we don't lose our saltiness as your church and as people who belong to you. God, thank you so much for Amos, where at first glance we can just see a lot of doom and gloom and a lot of dread, but we see that, Lord, how you move from brokenness to enlightenment to restoration. 
and how beautiful that is. God, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.